great to be with you this morning, to see you behind your masks, to try to figure out who was who as you came in. I think I, I think I figured out who most of you are. Is that Jim Taggart way up there? Yeah, I thought so. Hi, Jim. Uh, it's always homecoming to be here. Thank you, Pastor John, for inviting me. And Lorna, and, and Chuck was often part of it. Chuck was her assistant, unpaid volunteer assistant, who often uh, helped Lorna out. Um, and I'm so glad Penny is taking, am I right, Penny's? Men do not work well in this job. We tried it over the years. Men do, do not, you know, see no dirt, hear no dirt, touch no dirt. You know, one final thing about this. Um, space is so important. God loves space. He made so much of it, and he put us in a time-space body. This space is so important, and Lorna understood that. It was a ministry to create an environment of peace and order and, and cleanliness so that God's people could worship and gather. And that's, that's, that's huge. Thank you, Lorna. You're going to be missed. Um, we're going to look at a passage today to a weary people. Anybody weary? Are you tired of this? It's gone on pretty long and uh, no end in sight. We're hoping Pfizer here in Andover can get the job done. We got some great people on the job, Nick and uh, Beth uh, and others working hard. So we got to pray. But anyway, um, this is a message to weary people that the writer of Hebrews uh, was, was giving. Here's my outline this morning. I'm just going to give a little bit of background on the passage so that we can put it into context. And then th there's three words of encouragement in the first part of this passage to weary people. And then the writer of this decides to do something that we see nowhere else in the Bible. He decides to define faith. This is the only definition of faith we have in the Bible, and it's a functional definition. It's how faith works. So I've titled my message, How Faith Works. And, uh, and then, last of all, we're going to just uh, see how it applies to us. So that's where we'll go. But welcome to you. Welcome to all who are watching online. And uh, it, I know some folks as far away as Austin, Texas, the Tognonis are tuning in. Some of you remember them in uh, others. So it's great to be here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, let's just look at the background. We don't know for sure. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We don't know exactly when it was written. We don't know exactly to whom it was written, but it was a theological letter written to a group of people, probably Jewish people who had begun to follow Jesus as Messiah and probably living in Rome. That's, I think, the best guess. And there's actually even, I think, a pretty good speculation about when it was written, probably during the reign of Claudius. Claudius, uh, Emperor of Rome, had persecuted Christians and Jews and actually had driven the Jews and Christians out of Rome at one point. And there's a testimony of that in the, in the New Testament. And, and then they, they were able to come back, but nothing was the same. Their property was gone. We see that in these verses. Let me just read them. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light 
when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, all reference to the persecution they had undergone before. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better in lasting possessions. So th this is the context. And, you know, something happens when a struggle goes on for a long time. Eventually, you grow weary of it and you begin to withdraw. And I think that's what was happening in this, in this situation because they had stopped worshiping together. They were evidently very scattered. And there's a word that John will cover, I'm sure, in the uh, process of preaching through the book, where they are exhorted to come back together again, kind of in the situation that we're in. Um, I hope more and more people will find their way back to worship in person, because as good as online and virtual is, uh, we were meant to be in proximity with one another physically. And so, you know, socially distanced, but proximity, you get it. And, and so that's the situation. And it happens. I've seen it happen in marriages where the struggle went on and on and on. And then eventually what happened was what psychologist James Dobson calls a wall of indifference, where the struggle, it's easier for a couple to go their separate ways than it is for them to continue to fight the struggle to try to make their marriage work. I've seen it happen in custody battles where one person, one partner, one parent finally just gets worn down and uh, decides to give up their rights to the child, as tragic as that is, because the struggle was too long and too intense. And there's a weariness that sets in in that case. It happens with addictions or people who, the, the struggle for addiction goes on um, and they're constantly fighting off this addiction and they grow weary and they throw the towel in and, and slip back into the addiction. And it's, it's sad, it happens to us spiritually. Uh, there's actually a word for it, acedia, uh, A-C-E-D-I-A, acedia. And it was first identified in the early Christian era as the monks would gather in monasteries in the desert and they would become weary of the discipline and they would long to leave and go back to their old life again. It was called the sin of the afternoon because it was often late in the afternoon, especially in a hot desert climate. When you get lethargic, you get weary and you begin to doubt and you, you, you begin to want to throw the towel in. And, and it happens to us. Maybe it's happening in this situation where, with COVID. I know I had thought when it first started, there's going to be a time, there's going to be some more time, more space from schedule and all of that to, to devote myself more to spiritual things, to write, to do more thinking. Ah, <laughs> hasn't been that easy, has it? There's a weariness. Three words that the writer gives them. The first is in verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. The word confidence in the language of the New Testament, which was a common form of Greek, um, actually means open, openness. Think about that. Do not throw away your openness. When you're confident, you're open, you're out there, you're, you're engaged with people. When we lack confidence, we withdraw, we pull into ourselves and, and retreat. 
And so he's he's saying, don't throw away that openness. Maybe the persecution had been so severe that they were retreating and they were hiding because of the pressure that was on them. And he says, don't do that. You know, this is a time for us as believers to, to be open. Now, we might not be able to be out there physically in that sense, but to live our faith, to not be ashamed of the gospel, as Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Uh, it's a time for us not to be afraid to be identified with Christ. You might want to hide your political views or you might not have a very good thanksgiving or whatever. You might not want to put that sign up on your lawn, alienate your neighbors. Uh, but it's a time for us to be open about our faith in Jesus Christ. The second word he gives is to persevere. We see that in 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The word persevere is a good one in the original language too. It literally means to live under. Live under. Under what? Under the pressure. In other words, to find a way to have a life in the midst of whatever pressure or stress or struggle you are undergoing. Good advice. Good advice. Good counsel. We've somehow still got to live. We can't just suspend this whole season. We've got to find a way with our families, with our work, in our own individual lives, to make sense of life and find joy in everything, in every day. Find something. I was just sitting here, listening to pastor, of course, but I was looking out and I can see a tree, the leaves of a tree out through the rotunda, through the rotunda window, and the light was on it just for a moment there, and it's all uh, yellow, and it just caught my attention. We need to notice those things. This world that God has put us in, the, the little joys, the simple things, to find a life in the midst of this that works. That's a good word for all of us. And then the third word he gives them is about faith. And now he quotes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk in verse 38. He who is coming will come and, not, will, and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. This, uh, the righteous shall live by faith. It's in the obscure, uh, well, I shouldn't say obscure. It's obscure to me, the book of Habakkuk. You know, it's maybe in your Bible in those pages that are still stuck together because you've never read the book of Habakkuk. It's a little book of the Old Testament, one of the prophets, one of the last prophets. And it's a great book. And, it, and in the midst of that is this verse that the apostle Paul latched onto when in the first century he wrote his great work, the book of Romans. The book of Romans, which is the best explanation of what Jesus Christ did that exists anywhere in in the Bible or in history. And it could be, this could be the key verse of the whole thing. The righteous, or those who have been made righteous by God, who have been made right, who have been reconciled to God, live by faith. What it means is our 
our faith, our salvation, our acceptance has come not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and he has accepted us. And so Paul contrasts it with the law. He says, it's not the law any longer that makes you righteous. In fact, the law never made you righteous. It was your faith in God who gave the law that made you righteous in the old old days. Now it's faith in the one God has sent, his son. And then Martin Luther latched onto it in the Reformation, and it became the great verse of the Reformation that really gave birth to Protestantism and gave birth to a counter-Reformation, the renewal of the Roman Catholic Church as well, when, when, when the faith came back to what Jesus Christ had done, not what we have to do. And so this great verse reminds us that we have our life in our faith in Jesus Christ. And the way I relate to this, not only our, our, our acceptance, our salvation by, by God, but our very life. And I don't know if this happens to you, but we go through often, you know, kind of in the trenches of life. And life can kind of dim down. The joy can start to elude us a bit. And we get a little foggy um, in our walk. We don't see things as clearly. That is always a sign to me that I need to go back to the center that is Jesus Christ. I need to take more time to just be in his presence, to think, to pray, to get my life reoriented, sort of recalibrating that compass to, um, to Christ because he's our center, he's our core, and we need to, we need to uh, come back. And I think that's a great word for us as well. Then, because he's been talking about faith, the writer of the book of Hebrews decides to define faith. The only definition, as I said. And we see it in stages of development here. How it works, and it starts with hope. Looking now in verse 11, chapter 11, rather, and uh, the first verse. Now faith, and, and I have a slightly different one that was read, and I'm going to give you another slightly different uh, translation. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Sure of what we hope for, for and certain of do, what we do not see. It starts with hope. Faith starts with hope. The hope of something better. The hope that there's got to be something better in life than what I've experienced so far. It's often born of a, of a, a restlessness or a dissatisfaction about the way things are. How many times have we heard somebody give their, their testimony telling their story of how they came to faith? And they start by saying, I had a wonderful life. My life was good. I had a, a family, a, a home, a marriage, a good work. But something was missing. I was saying to myself, what is wrong? There's something within me that says there's something missing. And that is often, so often, how faith starts with that longing that there must be something more to life than just the years that we have, gathering the things that we gather, and then dying. What's the meaning of it? What's the purpose of it? Incidentally, a great question that Alpha asks. 
And I'll say something else about Alpha in a moment because it's had such a profound effect on this church and on, on uh, our ministry here and my ministry. But it starts with hope. Um, Jim Taggart, I'm glad you're here. Jim and I love astronomy. Over the years, Jim would send me articles, science articles. And a number of years ago, he sent me a quote from Carl Sagan's last book, last book Carl Sagan wrote before he died in the late 90s at the age of 62 of cancer. Um, and Carl Sagan, as you may remember, had a, had a show in the 1980s and 90s called Cosmos. And it was really the forerunner, the pioneer of all of the science shows, all of the shows that are the History Channel, Nacho Channel, all of those. Cosmos was the first of them all. And Carl Sagan did, he was an astronomer from Cornell, he did more to popularize science than probably anybody else. He was an atheist and he made no bones about that. But he was a very likable atheist. He, he was not an angry, hostile uh, type of atheist at all. But Carl Sagan wrote something in the last book that he wrote, and Jim sent me the excerpt, and I want to read it to you. Carl grew up in New York to a, a very well-educated uh, Jewish family, but he himself, as I said, uh, was, was not a, a believer. And um, he was an only child, very, very close to his parents. And this is what he wrote that I think is remarkable. He said, my parents died years ago. I was very close to them. I still miss them terribly. I know I always will. I long to believe that their essence, their personalities, what I love so much about them are really and truly still in existence somewhere. I wouldn't ask very much, just five or 10 minutes a year, say, to tell them about their grandchildren, to catch them up on the latest news, to remind them that I love them. There's a part of me, no matter how childish it sounds, that wonders how they are. I want to ask, is everything all right? The last words I found myself saying to my father at the moment of his death were, take care. Sometimes I dream that I'm talking to my parents and suddenly, still immersed in the dream work, I'm seized by the overpowering realization that they didn't really die, that it's all been some kind of horrible mistake. When I wake up, I go through an abbreviated process of mourning all over again, plainly, listen to this, last line, plainly, there's something within me that's ready to believe in life after death. That's a long way from a belief in Christ, but it's the first step, hope, that there really is something beyond this life. And then faith continues. We see this in the second, uh, um, actually another part of the first verse, and it's evidence Faith needs evidence. Faith is not blind faith. Um, we say take it by faith, and we mean, you know, you just have to accept it because I said it, the church said it, whatever. No, that's not how faith works. Faith has evidence. There's evidence. 
and this evidence comes, and, and this is the definition. It's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The word certain is translated in the King James Version, which was written about 400 years ago. Still a very good version. It's the word evidence. In other translations, it's translated proofs. Faith is the proof, the evidence of things not seen. This is how it works. We begin to have this hope and this longing for something more. And as we are reaching, we become aware of an unseen world. It's the evidence of things unseen. We begin to become aware that there there is this unseen spiritual realm. Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven. We begin begin to become aware and have a sense that there's something beyond that is real. We, we, We get evidence of that. And one of the most powerful evidences is other people who believe. We we see them talking about having a relationship with God and talking to God and having prayers answered. And this gives us more confidence. This is evidence. It's the evidence of testimony. JP is going to get to preach that great next chapter. Actually, it's the rest of chapter 11 uh, from where I will leave off about the testimonies of the heroes of the faith and what a great, uh, what great uh, demonstrations of faith they, uh, they exhibit. And so people that we know and love, maybe parents, maybe a youth leader, uh, maybe someone else that influences us and we, we begin to have confidence. And there's other evidence, obviously the word of God. Jesus said there's actually four evidences. this testimony of others, there's the word of God, there's miracles. We begin to pray and, and we find, amazingly, the prayer is answered. We say it's too coincidental to be a coincidence. Little private miracles that wouldn't mean anything to anybody else. That's why miracles that happen to other people don't have a lot of impact. Unless you see it, which they did in the New Testament, when Jesus ministry, he did miracles, and the people who saw it believed. The people who didn't, didn't, because you've got to see it to believe it. But God gives us these little miracles, little coincidences that are too coincidental to be coincidences, and we know it, and that's evidence. And then last of all, the most powerful evidence is when God speaks for himself, and he speaks to our heart, and that's the fourth one Jesus mentions. Um, Alpha a wonderful place for evidence. I remember when God spoke to me, I can, I can visualize it so clearly. I had begun to go to a youth group in my uh, junior year in high school. And then uh, in, in my junior year, I gave my life to Jesus. But I was still struggling. I still had confusion. And then in the uh, fall of my senior year, I was 16 years old. We went to school earlier back then. Some of you remember that. Uh, anyway, I was 16 years old and trying to decide whether to go to college or not. My parents hadn't gone to college. My older brother was in college, but he was a better student than me. Some of my friends were going. Some were going into the military. And I didn't know what to do. I was very confused. And, and I had gone into Brookline to visit my cousins. And I was on the subway coming home, the T, and I'd gotten on at, at uh, St. Mary's Stop, right there where Park Drive crosses Beacon Street, 
right near the Landmark Center, all, all that. I'd gotten on the subway, and I can describe that scene for you now. It was probably in November because the sky had a real clear, it was in the morning, I would say probably mid-morning. I, I can tell you where I was seated on that subway. I looked diagonally across the aisle. I can still see the slant of light coming in on that street in Brookline. It's right on the Brookline-Boston line. I could take you right to that spot. And I looked up, and there the advertising over the seats. Someone, I don't know what group, a church group perhaps, had put a verse from John chapter 6. Jesus' words, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And a, a wave of God's love washed over me. And I knew that was true, that God had set me free. And I decided to go to college. And uh, the rest is history. But that is the evidence that God gives us. He speaks for himself. That's why John's job is so easy. You should cut his salary. He hardly earns it. <laughs> he just stands up here and tells the word. And that says, okay, God, do your work. That's it. I'm done. That's evidence. Um, then there's substance. And there's a great word here. There's being sure. It's in the first part of verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for. Again, I'm going to take you back to the King James because it's, I think, the best word. In classical Greek, which is older even, it's the oldest language in the world, oldest uh, European, Indo-European language in the world, predates Hebrew. In classical Greek, the word is substance. Substance. Faith is the substance of what we hope for. Um, Aristotle used it to mean the essence. Faith is the essence. You want to know what is the real part of something? It's the essence. It was also the word that was used for sediment. That which settles to the bottom, that which is heaviest and sinks to the bottom. That's what faith is. If you ever watch the, the, the show Gold Rush, you know, sometimes there's nothing else on, let's be honest. <laughs> but they can pan gold because it's the heaviest thing. And after all the sediment is washed away, gold is left. And that's what faith is. When everything else is washed away in life, what's left? Faith. Hi, guys. <laughs> What's left at the end of life when everything's gone? Faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that's going to be around. And faith has an instinct for that which is most important. It leads us to the things that are most important. That's what faith does. Uh, so there's this definition. There's one last part. It's hope. It's evidence. It's substance. And last of all, it can, this passage concludes in verse 3. It leads us into reality. It shows us the way things really are. Look at this. Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen 
was not made out of what was visible. The Greeks, they were wicked smart. They, Greek science, understood that the earth was round. They even measured the circumference of it, and they were within about 200 miles of the actual circumference. It's 25,000 miles approximately around. Greeks knew that long before Columbus. They knew that. They proved it. But they thought the world was created by earth, wind, and fire. Wasn't that a group back in the old days? And water. Got to add water. They said those are the elements. Everything is made out of that. The writer of this book, because he read the Old Testament, read Genesis, he said, no. It was made by God out of nothing. And you know, in some way, science has advanced, obviously, incredibly uh, over the 2,000 years since this. But in one respect, science is no further along than um, the Greeks because they don't know where everything came from. We can go back to the Big Bang, but we have no idea, nor can we ever, where the Big Bang came from, where everything that started then came from. We don't know why this universe exists. Science cannot get us there. Science can't tell us how life started spontaneously. they, They know it didn't start on Earth. We've got four rovers on Mars looking for life, and we're going to send up another one. They're looking for life. They haven't found it yet. You know, the most microscopic forms of life, even those have this, as you know, this infinite, not infinite, but this incredibly complex DNA code. Life has to come from life. Time magazine in the millennium issue in 2000 predicted that sometime in the 21st century, science would have to acknowledge a creator of some sort. I don't know if that's going to happen. But the writer of the Hebrews knew it. It leads us into truth about the reality of things. In the light of Jesus Christ, I see myself. Sometimes I don't like what I see. But I see myself in the clear light of God's truth. I see my relationships. I see my, my relationship to my wife, to my children my grandchildren, to my neighbors, to this world, to the government. Jesus said, I'll lead you into all truth. Doctrinal truth? No, we we still can't agree on that. But I will lead you into all the truth that is important, the truth of my relationships, the truth of who I am, truth of my destiny. G.K. Chesterton, who was a great influence on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, he lived about a generation before them at the beginning of the 20th century. Great Catholic thinker and writer. He's written some really clever novels, if you want to, if you want to uh, read them. But he said this about God. We believe the sun is in the sky at midday in summer, not because we can clearly see the sun. In fact, we cannot. Do you ever think about that? You can go for weeks without, without, without ever actually seeing the sun because you don't want to look at it. And, you know, my neck doesn't go up as high anyway. But in fact, we cannot see it. But we believe it's there because we can see everything else. In the light of Christ, we have reality. We can judge things clearly. We can see things. We can make sense of our lives. The confusion, like the morning fog, clears because of that light that comes. 
I just encourage you again, if you have never taken Alpha, or if you know someone who's never taken it, you encourage them, you take it with them, because it presents faith in a way that makes sense, in, 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 that people can comprehend, in a way that doesn't um, create divisions over denominations or anything like that, but it unifies. It is an incredibly powerful ministry. And so I just want to uh, uh, commend it to you. All right, almost out of time. Um, a number of years ago, Eric McCarthy took me flying. He had a Cessna at that time. He's a very experienced pilot. Uh, we took off from, Low, from uh, Lawrence Airport. He says, Jack, why don't you do the takeoff? What? Yeah, I said, yeah, here, take, do the takeoff. I said, no, you do it. I don't want to die. So we flew up the coast of Maine, and we landed at a little airport up in Rockland, had lunch. And as we were coming in, he said, Jack, I want to just point something out. See the lights, the red and white lights? He said, those are the VASI lights. I said, what? The VASI lights, V-A-S-I, Visual Approach Slope Indicator. They tell you whether or not you have the right slope to land. If the lights are white, you're going to overshoot the runway and crash. If the lights are all red, you're going to fly short of the runway and crash. And so you need to see red and white. And when you see red and white, you know that it's time to land. I don't know where you are in your faith. I know obviously many of you, but I don't know. Some may be watching out there where you are in your faith. Maybe you've got evidence. Maybe you've got that longing for something. Maybe God has spoken to you. If the lights are lined up, then land the plane. Decide. Make a decision to give yourself to God and to follow Jesus Christ. Those who are believers, I think there's some great words for us here to, to, to find joy in our struggle, to find um, an openness, maybe a confidence to regather here in person and always to have our core in Jesus Christ. One day it'll all be washed away and only faith will remain. And what a great day that will be. Amen.